Jesus, we thank you so much, God, for your great love, for your deep care for us and concern and your provision, your grace. Lord, that you would be merciful to us, but yet also supply all that us weak people need. Lord, we approach your throne by your blood, which is the ultimate provision that you've made for us. We thank you, Jesus, so much. Amen. All right, today's study is called Keturah and the Kingdom. Keturah and the Kingdom. And I'm going to begin by reminding you guys of a story of when Jesus had died and the disciples had not yet realized or didn't yet know that he was risen from the dead, two of them were walking along the road to Emmaus. And as they walked, Jesus showed up to them, but they didn't know it was Jesus. He was closed their eyes so they couldn't tell that it was him. And they asked, he, Jesus asked them as they were walking, well, why are you guys so downcast? And, and his disciples were like, have you been living under a rock? Do you not know the things that have happened in Jerusalem and concerning Jesus, who we thought was the Messiah? And Jesus said, oh, really? And, and so Jesus, as they were walking, it says he began from Moses, the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the books we're studying, Genesis, and from Genesis, he started to show them how it was all about Jesus. It was all about him. It was all about him. And as we've been reading, we've been talking about Jesus quite a bit, haven't we? We've been seeing how, how Isaac pictures Jesus. We're going to see how Joseph pictures Jesus. We've seen Jesus show up to, to all kinds of people, Noah and all these different guys. We've seen Jesus showing up. We've, we've seen pictures of Jesus. It literally is all about Jesus. And as he explained this to the disciples, what something very interesting happened. Their hearts started to burn within them. That's what the Bible says. As they were talking about it afterwards, they said, didn't our hearts burn within us as he was unfolding the scriptures to us, as he was showing us how Jesus was in Genesis? It caused their hearts to burn. And when we dig into the scriptures, we find that they really are all about Jesus. And it has a deep impact on our hearts. We don't do this so that we can get smarter, so that we can win an argument with an unbeliever or with another believer, God forbid. We're not doing it so that we can have it up here. We're doing it so that our hearts can fall in love with God. And, and Jesus says that when we see him in the Old Testament, that that will be the result, is we will love him in a deeper way. Satan attacked Job because he thought men could never really love God for nothing. Just because of who he is. Satan says, does Job really love God for nothing or fear God for nothing. And God's like, you know what? Yes, he does. I know that Job loves me just for who I am. And so God allowed Satan to put Job through, take everything away, take away all the blessings, all the comfort. And what happened? Job still loved God. Now, Job wasn't too happy and Job didn't understand. But that wasn't the point because Job still loved God. Satan was wrong and God was right. So we get now to Genesis chapter 25, where you guys have your Bibles open to. And we see in verse 1, it says, Now Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah. 
As we've been studying chapters 22 through 25, we've got to remember that they are an awesome picture of Jesus. We saw chapter 22 where the son, Isaac, was offered up by the father, Abraham, as a sacrifice for sin. We, we studied that very in-depth. Even in the same place, God told said, go to the Mount of Moriah, which is Jerusalem, right outside Jerusalem, which is the place of the skull today, the place where Jesus was crucified 2,000 years later, 2,000 years ago for us. Such an amazing picture. Then we see in chapter 23, Sarah dies. Sarah dies, which is, she's the picture of Israel. That Israel, Jewish way of relating to God, the, the system of sacrifices and the law done away with. The veil torn We see Sarah died and put away as a way of relating to God. We no longer relate to God based on the Ten Commandments, even though we always fall back into that. We always fall back. But there's a new way, a glorious way, which was Jesus and his sacrifice, which came first in chapter 22. So chapter 23, Sarah dies. They, as the nation of Israel, that happened when Jesus was crucified. That way was done away with, and Israel very soon after that ceased to even be a nation. They were put away. There was no more temple. There was no more sacrifices happening. It all ended. And then chapter 24, we found a new bride for the son. The the servant of Abraham was sent out to another land to get a bride for the son, and we saw that was a giant picture of the Holy Spirit going out throughout the world and getting a church for Jesus Christ, who is the bride of Jesus. And as they are going throughout the world, the Spirit is going throughout the world, he's, he calls people to follow him, and they do. And that's the church. That's us. The sun goes out to meet her, and then they retreat into their room, caught up in the clouds of rapture. In eschatology, this happens when the bride finally reaches It's completion. When we finally reach and meet face-to-face with Jesus at the rapture, we go up into heaven. We're tucked away safely in the room. Where? What room did they go into? They went into Sarah's room, that place of closeness with God. They go up there. They're there. We are there. And then what happens? Then what happens? Now we get to chapter 25, and Abraham takes again another wife a different wife named Keturah. Abraham sees that his son has a bride. But what about the father? His wife had died. And after 20 years of being single, which is where Abraham's at right now, 20 years of loneliness, his heart is aching for his bride. Well, being lonely is kind of stinky, right? <laughs> Sometimes you just get a single person that's just like a stench that happens with singleness, you know. The wife isn't there to say brush your teeth and remember the deodorant and all this stuff. And these single guys can sometimes just have like a, ugh, just a stench. And you're going to see why I'm saying that in just a minute. So Abraham, he takes a new wife and her name is Keturah. And Keturah means incense, much incense. Life no longer stinks for him. He takes this relationship after 20 years. These, all of these things are really cool when you start to dive into the prophecy of it all. 
after maybe 2,000 years of the church, you have a new relationship with God, the Father. After the Son is reunited with his bride and they're tucked away in heaven, God, the Father, turns his attention now to earth to get his wife, you could say. Why do we need to know this? If you guys would turn with me to Romans chapter 11, we're going to investigate and find out why and what is going on with God the Father and his new bride. Why do we need to know this? After the rapture, God the Father gets his wife again. Hosea, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah all talk about Israel being the wife of God. We are the bride of Christ, the church. But Israel is many times mentioned as the wife of God. She's an unfaithful wife. She's a a wife full of harlotry. But she's his wife nonetheless. And she was put away at one time. But we see now that the son has been tucked away with his bride, that the father turns his attention back and wants his wife again. Even though she was unfaithful with God, God is not done with the nation of Israel. And we're getting this from the book of Genesis. People need to understand that Israel is a country again now because of covenants and promises that were made to them in the book of Genesis. It's really amazing. In Romans chapter 11, verse 1, we read, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Romans chapter 11, verse 2 now, the second verse. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel saying, and then he goes on. He knew that Israel would be unfaithful before he chose them. And he still chose them. This does not mean that that men have a reason to be unfaithful. And well, God knew I was going to be unfaithful, so I'm going to go cheat on my wife. God knew I was going to be faithful, so I don't need to surrender my life to him. But God did not choose you because of your faithfulness. That's the difference. It doesn't give you an excuse. It gives you a reason to love him more. He did not choose you because he knew you were going to never going to fail. That was never part of his decision-making of why he would call you to trust his son. Never. He chose you. Israel never once deserved to be chosen. And as we look back, we could say, oh, well, they, they lost that choosing through various things. And Paul's clearly says, no, they didn't. They weren't faithful. They are under the chastising of God, and they're not in that place of being God's people right now, but that does not mean that he is done with them. He is not done with them. He comes back to make them. He's going to do an even greater work. Look in verse 25 of Romans chapter 11. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Paul is saying, Guys, don't be dumb about this thing. What I want to talk to you about, Israel. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion. He's saying, don't be dumb thinking you figured it out. You guys can't figure this out. You won't be able to just figure it out by looking at history, by looking at Israel. You can't figure it out that way. But he says that blindness in part has happened to Israel. Until when? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So he's saying God has a plan for Israel. You can't figure it out. 
You'll never be able to figure it out lest you be wise in your own opinion. And he says that blindness has happened. There is a blindness of the people of God, the, the, the children of Israel, excuse me. And they cannot see because God has blinded them until what happens? It says until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. What does that mean? That means the time when the last Gentile receives Jesus and gets saved. So if that could be you, most of us in here are Gentiles. So if you have, are the, you could be the last Gentile if you're in here and you're not saved. You need to get saved right now. Then we're all out of here. We get to go to heaven. The fullness of the Gentile comes in. The bride goes up to be with Jesus. And God can then turn his attention and take the blindness off of Israel. He can't do. He says, by his word, I will not take the blindness until the Gentiles have received. Why? Why? Because God made promises to the Gentiles as well that he would open up the kingdom of heaven to all nations through Jesus Christ. And literally, when the, when the last Gentile gets saved, that's the end of time. That's the end of time. But time goes on. You have the whole tribulation and all this. And how does that all happen? Where does that all fit in? Well, it's kind of like bonus time. It's kind of like extra time. It's kind of like time when the world begins to get cleansed by God. And time's over, so they're getting their judgment. But God is working powerfully through the nation, to the nation of Israel and through the nation of Israel. And by the end, they will all be saved. They will be saved by the end of that seven years. So look what happens. Verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved. Ha, you thought I was lying. You thought I was joking or making that up. No, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Not the nations, from Jacob, which is Israel. And then he says, verse 27, For this is my covenant with them, when I will take away their sins. Concerning my gospel, they are enemies right now for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. The fathers. See, God loves them. He's their father. The father loves them. Why? I don't know. I'm not going to try to figure it out to be wise in my own opinion. But he loves them and has chosen them. And he is working in them and they will, by the end of this tribulation, they will all be saved. Israel is my wife. I love her, God says. Even though they have been evil, unfaithful, and I blinded them for a period of time so that my truth could go out to all the Gentiles, I'm going to come back when the time of the Gentiles' grace is over. When the Gentiles' time of God working through them, through the Holy Spirit, going out through the world, and that Holy Spirit drawing a church for God, it's going to end. The time of the Gentiles getting saved is soon coming to a close, and then God will go back to dealing through in Israel alone. That's how he's going to work. When do they understand? When the fullness of Gentile comes in. When we are in heaven, we get raptured, we're up in heaven, their eyes and their hearts become open during that tribulation, that seven years. It is called the time of Jacob's trouble. Why? Because it's time of God dealing and, and working in Jacob's life, in Israel's life. All for the purpose of waking up Israel. And they will realize that Jesus is their Messiah. Back in Genesis, it says, Then Abraham took again a wife, and her name was Keturah. The Antichrist, during this time of tribulation, will try to kill every Jew. There will be a supernatural hatred for, from all the people in the world against the Jews. 
They'll try to come after him, and Israel nuke him, and we have all these different stories in the Bible of what's going to happen, and it all culminates in the seven years with the Battle of Armageddon, where all the armies from the east are rebelling against the Antichrist, and he's fighting against Israel, and they all end up in the Valley of Megiddo right there in northern Israel, a beautiful big valley where lots of people could show up, and they all do, 100 million men from the east, China and those people rebelling against the Antichrist and his rule, and the Antichrist right there, their armies all meet there. And what happens? Jesus shows up riding on a white horse in all of his glory. And who's with him? His church. Us. And what are we doing? We're riding on horses too. So if you don't like riding on horses, you better learn. Because we're going to be, and they're flying horses too, Pegasus. Rah. You know, it's crazy. What's a flying horse called? Pegasus. Thank you. I was right. All right. I, something in my mind, I was like, did I say unicorn? Okay. I get my mythical creatures confused sometimes. Need to read more of the Odyssey. Okay, so Jesus shows up. He's got eyes of like a flame of fire. His hair is all white and curly. He's got crown and crown and crown, tons of crowns on his head. He's got a huge tattoo on his leg that says, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and a sword coming out of his mouth. And they, the people of the world, say, we hate you. And they turn their weapons upon him and they fire upon him. And Jesus is like, are you kidding me? And he speaks one word and they all die. All the people who are rebelling against him die. Pretty sad. But he shows up to establish his kingdom. And look at what Zechariah chapter 13 says. We have so much information about this event. It's crazy. In Zechariah 13, 6, it says, Then one will answer and say to him, Hey, what are these wounds between your arms? And he will say, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Wow, the Jews sitting there like sitting ducks about to get ravaged by all these nations being divinely protected during this time. And they see Jesus coming and they're like, hey, where'd you get those wounds between your arms? And he said, I got these wounds in the house of my friends. And it says, all Israel will be saved. They will be saved. And they're like, you are a Messiah. And they worship him. They receive him. And then what happens? Well, in that day, that same day, it says in Zechariah 14, verse 4, it says, in that day, his feet will stand or land. He's been floating around, flying, and he lands on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will split in two from east to west, making a very large valley, and half the mountain will move to the north and half of it to the south, and it creates this giant river that flows out, and it, it makes the Dead Sea alive again. It's no longer a salty sea. It, it flows in, and it's just huge topographical changes in the world. Jesus touches down, and he sets up his kingdom, and this kingdom is called the millennium, the millennium, where he will rule on earth from Israel, from Jerusalem, for 1,000 years of perfect peace and safety. He will go through the east gate into Jerusalem, which I've been to Israel, and today the east gate is there, but it's filled with rocks. It is sealed up. The Muslims sealed it up hundreds of years ago so that the Messiah could not enter. But that will not stop him. He'll bust through it like a transformer and come. It's going to be glorious. And we're all going to be there watching it. And they're going to have a new temple built. It's the temple described in Ezekiel. And they'll change the name of Jerusalem to Jeru. Shema, which means God, the Lord, is there. 
No longer God is peace, but just God is there. The Lord is there. And all Israel will be saved. They will enter into this time. It'll be glorious. God will restore the world how it was in the Garden of Eden. Jesus will rule and reign right there in Jerusalem. And there'll be some crazy changes. But we're getting off track. Keturah. Abraham married Keturah, which means incense, which is a word related to the temple. The temple always has incense burning, which speaks of the relationship, and it's removing the stench of the singleness of God. This relationship is coming back into rightness between God and his people, Israel. Now we have verse 2 in Genesis 25, verse 2. And she bore to him Zimran. Zimran. Zimran means Song, song. And it's so interesting. We are going to see the names of these children of Abraham and Keturah describe for us what happens during the millennial reign of Jesus. It's so crazy. The meanings are mean so much in the Bible. They always have meaning. Do you remember in Genesis chapter, uh, well, nine, when um, we see the uh, names from Adam to Noah? And how Adam means man, Seth means appointed, Enosh means sorrow. And it went down and said, man was appointed, mortal sorrow. But the blessed God came down preaching that his death shall bring the despairing comfort. That is the meaning of the names in Genesis. Man appointed mortal sorrow, oh, because they sinned. But the blessed God came down preaching that his death shall bring the despairing comfort. Those are the names from Adam to Noah, just their sons. The names mean so much. And here we have Keturah and her children. They begin with a song, which is exactly what happens. Isaiah says that the mountains, when Jesus comes back this day, that the mountains will break forth singing and the rocks will clap their hands, the trees will clap their hands on the day Jesus comes back. We're going to see that. Going back to the way it was in the Garden of Eden, everything is going to be right. In Isaiah 30, it says the sun will be seven times brighter. And the moon will be as bright as the sun is now. That's how the world is going to be. And the water canopy will be restored, and there's been no danger from the sun or sunburns. Praise the Lord. The lion and the lamb are going to be friends again. No more carnivores. Kids will play with snakes. They will never study war anymore. There will be no weapons in the whole world. There'll be peace for a thousand years. Why? Because Satan is locked up. He gets locked up at the beginning of this thousand years and he's locked up all the way until we'll see in a second. And every, there will be prosperity, the Bible says in Isaiah. Every man will own their own house, it says. There will be no debt. Everyone will be rich. How rich? Did you know? Certain economists have figured it out, how, many, how much riches are in the world right now. And if you added everything together, I mean money, natural resources, items created, everything that's in the world right now, added it up, it would be ten, one decillion dollars. To get an idea what that is, you got billion, trillion, quadrillion, five, six, octillion, up to decillion, ten of those. Everyone in the entire world will be a billionaire. Just with the resources we know about today. But Isaiah 55 says everything's going to be free anyway. This is crazy. <laughs> There'll be no sickness, no disease. Oh, the only people that will die will be those who are put to death from direct rebellion. It, it says if someone dies as a hundred years old, they will be grieved as an infant dying. 
people won't die. They'll live the thousand years because God's going to restore it back to the way it was. This is a perfect, wonderful time. Micah chapter 4 says that we will all go to Jesus. Everyone in the world will go to Jesus and he will teach us about himself. And this is what the song Joy to the World was written about. We think of it as a Christmas song, but it's not. It was written about the millennium. Listen to the words. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. In he- and heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Far as the, or he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. See, he takes away the whole curse. Everything from Adam and Eve, the whole curse, all the sin, Jesus does away with. Then verse 4, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. See, we, all the nations, not us, we're going to have our glorified bodies. We're not people anymore. We're like glorified flying things. We have glorified bodies. We've been in heaven. We have, we're perfect. We have no more sin nature. We are his government. The people on the earth, they are still people. They live through the tribulation. God brought them through and they repopulate the world. There's more time, there's more written about this time in the Bible than almost anything else. We have so much information about this. And so we get to the names of the other children. Jokshan means snare. Medan means strife. Midian means contention. Ishbek means man will leave alone or leaving behind. And then Shua means from the pit. Wow. These are kind of depressing names. Abraham and Keturah were like in a bad mood after their first kid. I don't know what was going on, but it was prophecy. Because we see that this time of the millennium seems like it's going to be wonderful, but it's full of people. And that's what screws it all up. That's what makes it hard. Okay, so in Revelation 20, it says this time ends, this millennium, with Satan coming from the pit, being released from the pit. That last name, Shua, from the pit. And before that, you had all these snare and contention and strife. What is going on with the people? Why are they rebelling so much during this time? Well, Israel and the people who go into it are are not rebelling In fact, we have a lot of details about that. Israel remains faithful to God. They are now his wife, but there's other people that enter the millennium, anyone who survived the tribulation. And those people, they all love God too. Some of the Gentiles, they love God. But all these people have babies. They repopulate the world. And each generation that grows up, and imagine how many babies you could have if God removed the curse. Hey, no more pain. No more sickness. You just can have baby after baby after baby after baby after baby. Women are like, whoa. But they repopulate the earth. And there, there are conservative estimates that say there could be more people on the earth at the end of the millennium than there are today. That the, the, the amount of, if no one's dying, you could have billions of people on the earth. Everything's free. Everyone's billionaires anyway. There's no war. There's no fighting. Everyone gets along. Um, anyway. 
But each generation that grows up in this, they're growing up in a peace and prosperity. They will fade in their love for God. See, they'll grow up and they'll, they'll, ha- they'll have hearts that don't remember the bad that was before. They won't remember the murder, the crime, the sickness. They'll have no notion of pain, sorrow, broken relationships like the ones who went through the tribulation will. And they will say, boring. We have to go see Jesus every year. Nothing is ever exciting. My heart longs for some adventure, something sinful. I want it. That's what's going to happen. He rules with a rod of iron. Where's the adventure? The Bible says that there will be a rebellion during this time of perfect rule of Jesus. He releases Satan. And they rebel. God crushes it. And that's when he finally destroys this heaven and this earth, creates a new heaven and new earth where righteousness never disappears. The end. We all live happily ever after. But how do I keep this from happening to my heart where God is just so good that I get bored of him? Jesus will allow Satan to be loosed so that they can make their choice that their hearts really want to make. He knows their hearts. Yes, he's ruling with a rod of iron, but he knows their hearts. And what does God want above everything else? Love. He wants to be loved as he loves. How do I, how, but how did this happen? How can we backslide? How can we forget the important things? How can we change in, in a bad way or drift away? In the millennium, everyone in the world is required to go see Jesus once a year. Or no rain would fall on their land and plagues would be on their family. We find this in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16. And it comes come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations that come against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them will be no rain. And if the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. And they shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So every year they're they're required to come and see Jesus and they're required to come to the temple. And what do they do at the temple? Animal sacrifices. Well, I thought animal sacrifices were done and over with. Why are they reinstated during the time of the millennium? And we're told in Hebrews... There is no more effectiveness for animal sacrifices. They don't work anymore for taking away sin. Jesus did that when he died on the cross, ended that way of working. It doesn't work anymore. But they have to see it. They come to the temple and they watch the priests. They watch them take a lamb and slit its throat and blood pour out. And they never see this. All the rest of the world is perfect. And the people are just like, this is gross. Why does God want us to see this? And the truth is, is that it's an attempt to teach the future generations what sin does. Death. All things they can't see with Jesus ruling and reigning on the throne. It shows what sin does to their lives. And it also shows what Jesus, what happened to Jesus because of their sin. So it's an attempt to preach the gospel. It's a, it's a picture that the Lord uses during the time of the millennium. 
And they need to keep coming to the temple in order to keep the memory of Jesus and death and the sacrifice fresh in their hearts and in their minds. What, you know, what about Hebrews? It tells us that the temple isn't needed anymore. So why do we have it in the millennium? It's not effectual. It's illustrative. It's not, it's not doing anything. It's illustrating for them what has already been done. So that's why. But right now, we're not in that time. There is no temple right now. But we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It says in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 6.19, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? What does this mean? And in this temple, we need to keep the incense and the songs fresh. We need the passion for our Lord not to fade. We need to be continually having a fresh song and having that incense, that relationship with the Lord. And how do we keep it from getting boring? How do we keep it from getting boring? How does this work? By remembering the sacrifice. Where? In my heart. I am the temple. I need to be continually having that lamb slaughtered in my heart on a daily basis, getting bloody inside me with communion. There's a reason why you drink the, wine, the grape juice. It's because it needs to be inside you. The sacrifice needs to be of the, effectual in the heart so that it can penetrate the hardness and keep you from drifting away. Watching the lamb get slain in the theater of your mind will keep your heart deeply in love with him and will keep you from drifting away. I want to explain to you just real quick. I know we've gone long today. I love you guys. I missed you. That's why I'm going really long. What is crucifixion? A medical doctor provides a, uh, a quick phys uh, physical description of what Jesus went through, and it's beneficial for us to look at this briefly because some of our hearts have grown cold. Some of us have forgotten or made a choice to walk away from what Jesus did for us. And we need this picture to play in our minds. We need our hearts to break when we think about what Jesus has done for us. The cross is placed in the ground and the exhausted man is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depressions at the front of the wrist and he drives a heavy, square, wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly but to allow some flex and movement. The cross is then lifted into place. The, foot, the left foot is pressed backward against the right foot and both feet extended, toes down, and a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees flexed. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in the wrists, excruciating fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails in the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid the stretching torment, he places the full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, he feels the searing agony of the nails tearing through the nerves between the bones in his feet. 
as the arms fatigue, cramps sweep through the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps come the inability to push himself upward to breathe, and air can be drawn into the lungs, but not exhaled. He fights to raise himself in order to get even a small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmatically, he is able to push himself up, upward to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain cycle Cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down through the rough, uh, against the rough timber. Then another ag- agony begins, a deep, crushing pain deep in his chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress his heart. It is now almost over. The loss of tissue and uh, fluids has reached critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into his tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. He can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. Finally, he can allow his body to die. And all this the Bible records with the simple words, and they crucified him. What wondrous love is this? That he deserved none of it. And here's our last question. Do you love God? Just for who he is. We know a lot about him. And the pinnacle of our knowledge about him is Jesus. And the pinnacle of what Jesus expresses to us is on the cross. And if we forget about it, even for a day, even for a moment, we are dying in our souls. We are drifting away from our oxygen. Just for who he is, that he first loved you. You hated him at this point. There was a time in your life where you hated God. Maybe you're still there right now. He doesn't change. He still loves you right now. But do you love him? Has your heart been deeply touched like the disciples on the road as they talked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus? They talked with Jesus and they didn't even realize it was him. But their hearts were led the way. They allowed the words and the teaching of Jesus to penetrate into their hearts. And when God finally opened their eyes, Their hearts were ready to believe and to follow. That's our Bible study for today.